0: Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word tonight, we pray that your spirit would inspire us, that you would teach us from what Paul wrote all those years ago. May you be honoured and glorified, Father. Amen. Amen. Well, if you are a visitor tonight uh, here, uh, just reiterate what Richard has said. This is uh, a new series for us in this small book called Titus. We're in the second of the series, and Richard has asked us to title it The Good Life. So what's he mean by that? Well, The Good Life is what, is going to, is what helps us as church members, if we're following Jesus, to live godly lives. So the question for us then is what should the church look like? How should it be governed? And by what authority do we live? Well, Paul writes to Titus. Titus is a co-worker with him concerning the situation within the church in an island of Crete in the uh, Mediterranean. And the main theme of the letter is the link between faith, what we believe, and practice, belief and behavior, especially concerning the teaching and the lives of the leaders of the church and the lives of the teachers and how they affect the community of believers. So that's the main Uh, theme, if you like. And the second one is all to do with obedience and disobedience. Are they being obedient to the authority of God's written word? So what was Titus actually to do in Crete? Well, Paul writes in the first uh, nine verses, which we looked at last week, that there was unfinished work. Paul instructs Titus in verse 5 to put what remained of the fellowship of believers into order by appointing good elders into each church. Now we need to understand what the church situation was here. It was small in number, what we'd probably call more like house churches because they met in local people's homes. And uh, he says that what are they, what are they to do? Well, he, they are to, he is to appoint good leaders. And he gives a description in these first uh, eight or nine verses on what a good teacher or elder should be like. But Richard said to us last week that this isn't just about eldership, because in chapter 3, verse fif- 15, Paul says that this applies to each believer in those churches. So, what did Richard say? Well, last week, Richard said there were two building blocks that were given to help in this work. Firstly, there was the good news of God's salvation, and secondly, there were the lives of the actual leaders and teachers. Now, why did he say that? Well, the reason is given in the beginning of our text tonight that we had read to us. Look at verse 10 for, for, that's the reason, there are many rebellious false teachers. And the challenge for us is even though the structure of organized Christianity is perhaps different today, are we following Paul's apostolic teaching? within our churches? Do we recognize that there are rebellious, or there can be, rebellious teachers and influencers who don't submit to the authority of the inspired word of God? And so the big challenge for us is, is there such thing as divine revelation which has authority over us today in our culture and our situation? Well, we will return to this later on this evening. But the situation in Crete and in other churches that Paul writes to is chaotic and destructive. And this has caused him to specify what moral and physical characteristics these elders and teachers should have and what should be taught. Paul wants to encourage the believers through having sound doctrines taught and leaders whose lives reflect this. So let's have a look at these false teachers in a bit more detail, and why and how Titus should act. Well, We see in this passage that Titus is to appoint good leaders because of the character of these false leaders, the character of the false leaders. Look what he says in verse 10. He says that many of them are rebellious, they're insubordinate, they don't like taking the authority of the scriptures, they are talkers and they are deceivers. Mere talkers and deceivers. Yes, they were impressive talkers, but the the teaching contained little or no solid content of truth. They were disobedient and they were resistant to the authority of the apostolic teaching. And this apostolic teaching was to be considered on par with Jesus' teaching. We know of this because we read of it in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Now these characteristics are very similar to what Paul had been writing to Timothy about in the church in Ephesus. We read of this in 1 Timothy 1 verses 3 and 4. And there is also evidence that these false teachers in Crete had the characteristics of the Cretan people at large and the people of Jewish descent, because we read of that as well in these verses. We read in verse 10, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, we don't know too much about the people of Crete, but what we do know about them, is that in the ancient world in general, they were known for their moral decadence. The ancient historian Polybus wrote this, it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. The reference to the character of the people in Crete is stated in verse 12, a reference to a poet called Epidemus who described his own people with these characteristics. Now, Paul wisely doesn't criticise the people of Crete, but he allows their poet to do so. And we also read that despite their teaching and claims that they knew God, Paul states that they are in fact detestable, disobedient, and because their minds and consciences are completely incapable of doing any good. And so we see that in verse 15, Paul says, they are so detestable, they're not capable of doing any good. So what we see here, of course, is that Paul doesn't hold back, does he? He uses strong language to make sure that Titus and the local churches can recognize who he is talking about, the elders and false teachers. So then, what are these elders actually teaching? What is their teaching? What's the error of their teaching? Well, there's no reference in this passage here to actual doctrines that they are teaching. There's no list of wrong doctrines being taught. Now, some commentators think that these teachers have the characteristic of Gnostic thought, which concentrates upon aesthetic requirements of keeping a moral toad, and of also including some of the Jewish fables and myths. But rather, what Paul is saying here is he's talking in general terms of their errors. So what's he say about them? Well, he says, first of all, that they are paying attention to the commands and rules that man has set up. They are rejecting the truth. Look at verse 14. And this is their first error. They reject the truth of God. They forsake divine revelation for human opinions. Now, this is the same teaching that was given by Jesus that we can read of in Mark 7, verse 7, where Jesus says, They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by man. So then, the first error, then, that they are making is that they are paying attention to men's rules and not God's truth. But secondly, look at verse 15. They are wrong because they have a false understanding of purity. They are like the Pharisees who held a false understanding of purity, whose teaching concentrates upon signs of external and ritual purity in contrast to internal And moral purity. Now, Paul is not talking here about the Mosaic law, which he held as divine in its origin, nor about the traditions of the Jewish elders who were distinguishing between clean and unclean meat. But what Paul is saying is that these false teachers reject the truth. He's referring to these Gnostic requirements of legalistic activities. The banning of marriages, the banning of sex, alcohol, and certain foods, as we see in 1 Timothy 4. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 6, we read this. They, that is these Gnostic teachers, forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe you know the truth. And again, this is similar to what Jesus teaches us in Mark 7, verse 15, where he says, nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And so the point that Paul is making here is that the keeping of legalistic activities, certain not eating certain foods or drinking certain things, makes one pure. Now we know this is true, don't we? When we see people who are strongly legalistic, they keep laws of what to eat and drink, what to do on a Sunday or not to do. But they show little evidence of love for others and little evidence of serving others. So the second, then, error of these, legal, these teachers is that they have a false understanding of purity. The third falsehood that they have is that they claim to know God because of their actions, of their Gnostic traditions. They claim to have a higher, more exclusive knowledge of God. Look at verse 16. So it raises the question for us is, how are we to understand and believe people who make a claim of knowing God more than others? Well, Paul states, by the way that they behave, their practical actions deny knowing God. What they say and do doesn't add up. They are hypocritical. They are faith, they don't, uh, James writes, doesn't he, in his his letter, faith without works is dead. And the quality of a person's life is the best way to test their knowledge of God, writes the Apostle John in 1 John 4, verse 4. Now whether Paul is thinking of their general behaviour in particular, or particular ascetic practices, we don't know. But he says in verse 16 that they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing any good. Strong words of criticism by the apostle. So how then should Titus act, and why should he act? Well, we see this in verse 11. These false teachers, by their teaching, are having a very negative effect upon the local community of believers who meet in these local house churches. It's having a very negative effect upon them. These house churches made up of families are being upset turned upside down, divided by the teaching, which may well have included the use of magic arts. We just don't know. But the false teachers are turning people away from faith. They were teaching things that not, ought not to be taught, we read in verse 11. For what reason? Why are they doing this? Well, they're doing it so that they become popular with the people and for monetary gain they can make money out of their teaching, what Paul calls dishonest gain. Their very actions are leading to division, so going against the command of unity within the family of God, of loving each other. People are also being led astray from the true gospel of grace, that we are saved by what Jesus has done on the cross for us and not by anything that we can do. So, Titus, Paul writes, action is required. There's no room here for placidity, no room for compromise, no room for allowing everybody to have their own opinion on the issue. Paul's stand is very unlike our modern thought and culture, because there's no room here for empathy. No, Titus is told by Paul to silence these teachers, to rebuke them sharply. To rebuke them sharply. Look at verse 13. But why should Titus do this? Well, so that they, that is the false leaders and teachers, may come back into sound faith, orthodox doctrine within the discipline of the church. Now, I think it's important that we note here at this point, there is no instruction by Paul to Titus to eject these teachers from the church. No, what Titus has got to do is he's got to encourage them by giving them the correct teaching and help to bring them back into the fellowship of the community of faith. So, in other words, what we're seeing here is we're seeing love in action, bringing the false teachers back into the community if they're willing to repent and to come back to strong faith. Now, in today's church, can't we see similar situations arising? We see some teachers who are insubordinate towards God's word by being motivated by the desire for popularity and material gain. There will be those who want to teach what others want to hear, rather than the word of God found in the Bible. There will be those whose influence will not just stop at the one or two people, but have a negative effect upon whole families or communities, splitting fellowships up. So how can we apply this to our situation? What is going to be the application tonight from this passage? Well, yes, we receive teaching, don't we, from our, our clergy, from Richard, from our preachers and teachers. And when it's not. there's no comment on that. But we also need to recognize that we come under the influence of many other forms of teaching. From, we've had for the last 150 years or so, we've had books written for Christians to read. But now, we not only have these books, we have the radio, we have online resources, we even have teaching that comes from God channels on television. So how do we benefit from them? How do we judge these varied inputs that will influence our lives of faith and discipleship? Well, the late John Stott, who was a theologian and a pastor in London gives us three questions or tests on which we can apply as we look at different influences and teaching upon our faith. Three influences or three tests. The first one is that we can ask is, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Is its origin divine, that is from God, Or is it from humanity, from mankind? Is it laid down by God in the Bible, or is it from man? Is it revelation, as seen through the teaching of the Bible, or of tradition? Or does it come from man's cleverness and thinking? So the first question, then, we can ask ourselves is, what is the origin of this influence or teaching? Secondly, John Stott says, is its essence inward or outward, spiritual or ritual? And then thirdly, what are its outcomes? What's the results of this teaching? Does it lead to a transformed life for those who follow it, where people who encompass the teaching become more like Jesus? Or is it just a matter of a formal creed? Well, I think there are three useful tests that we can make as we listen and hear teaching uh, about the Christian faith from many different sources. And these three questions illustrate the character of what John Stark calls true religion. He puts it like this. He says of religion that true religion is divine in origin, that is, it comes from God, spiritual in its essence, and moral in its effect. It's true religion is divine in origin, spiritual in its essence, and moral in its effect. In other words, as we look at discipleship, as we look at following Jesus, Does it stem from God, what Jesus teaches? Do we follow the spiritual practices that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount? And do our lives show changes brought about by the Holy Spirit so that we become more like Jesus? Well, true discipleship involves following Jesus, his teaching and actions, and putting love into action. In contrast, these false teachers that we have read of in these verses tonight, who, according to Paul, are detestable, which provokes disgust in the people of God, they're disobedient, they're dismissive of God's word, and they're unfit for doing any good. Now, Of these three characteristics, the one of disobedience is the theme of this passage. So then, to return to my big question for the church today, is there such a thing as divine revelation? Because that's the start of true religion. And does this divine revelation have authority over us as individuals and as a corporate body together? So are we ready to submit to it, to God in humble faith and obedience? Or are we like unruly children and reject God's authority? There's a man called Harry, I think it's Blamers, and he wrote a book called The Christian Mind. And he says this, an authoritative revelation leaves us with two alternatives, either the bowed head or the turned back. The bowed head, one of submission to it, or the turned back going one's own way. So what can we learn from Paul in this passage today? Well, surely we can copy Paul's strategy, can't we? Because Paul was profoundly disturbed by the prevalence of false teaching within these churches that he had founded and visited. We see this from all the letters that he writes. He uses strong language which shows a profound concern. We read of deceivers, empty talkers, speculators in controversy and arguments. So how then did he react to this distressing situation in Crete and Ephesus? Well, we see here, don't we, that he refuses to give in. He didn't remain idle or silent on the grounds that everyone has a right to their own opinion. He didn't think that the church was irredeemable. He was not a defeatist. No, as the false teachers increase, he works hard to increase the true teachers and elders. Go back to verses 3 to 10 again. Appoint good leaders, he says to Titus. And therefore, in our situation, within our country, culture, don't we need to do the same? Good leaders are needed at whatever leadership roles they fulfill whether that's leaders of small groups or big groups leaders of churches or whole denominations good leaders both morally and doctrinally so surely we need to pray don't we for the training of, college, of co- for the training colleges that they will teach the word of god that the word of god is still authoritative that it is god's word and that the leaders will be godly in lifestyles as well. We need to pray this to encourage them, so that as these students come out into our churches, they will pursue reform and revival, that they will have the authority of God's word found in the Bible, that Jesus is the only way to God today, and that they will be people of moral behaviour. Well, we can remain vigilant, can't we? Because when there's a shortage of pastors, there's a temptation to lower standards. In a world of liberal, moral, sexual activity identity, surely we need to maintain the divine calling as given in the Bible. So what then can we do, us little individuals here at Trinity? Well, we can pray, can't we? We can pray for those that are teaching and those that are training new leaders, that they will have the confidence and the authoritative word of God, the Bible. We can pray for the moral standing of the new leaders in training. We can pray for those who currently lead our church. We can pray for our new bishop, Graham, our new curate and family as they come to us in the late summer. We can pray that they will have confidence in God's word. But as Paul writes in chapter 3, this applies to all of us who follow Jesus. So let's encourage one another, not forgetting to meet together to praise God. Let's pray for one another, that we have confidence in God's word. Because Paul definitely did. And he had the confidence to tell Titus to carry out this really difficult job. I mean, can you imagine it? You know, I mean, what Titus had to do. He had to go and tell these false teachers that they were basically rotten people and they weren't doing their job. But he had to tell them in a way of love that would bring them back into the community of believers. We can have that confidence today and we can pray. So let's do that. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, the apostle, and the other apostles, and all those men and women who wrote your word, and you brought it down to us through 2,000 years of history. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our leaders, our new bishop, and our curate, his coming later on in the summer, and Richard and Carol here as well. And we pray that we would go out into this week ahead of us confident that your word is the word of life. Amen.